Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. You guys hear me pretty good? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, everybody have a good Christmas? Awesome. Yeah, so did I. Um, yeah, love Christmas season. Uh, this was our first Christmas in Bakersfield. Um, and I hope this is what Christmas looks like for us, like doing karaoke, like Christmas songs together, right? That was awesome. Um, yeah, that was so awesome spending time with you guys um, <clears throat> watching Christmas movies. Um, so one thing I do, I do want to apologize for um, as I was talking to people. Um, and so I, I recommended watching the movie last Christmas, I think, to a lot of you. And I watched it last night with my family. And there's like a lot of bad stuff in that movie. And so I apologize. That is my error. Please forgive me for that. I know why I recommended it, like the heart transformation and service and stuff, but going back and watching that, no, there's like a lot of stuff. If you're watching that with your parents and your kids, um, and so I apologize if you watch that, please forgive me for that. Um, <clears throat> much better Christmas movies out there, much more uh, G-rated um, Christmas movies, including movies um, that my family has watched in the past um, known as Hallmark movies. Right? So Christmas Hallmark movies, like, you know, there's not going to be anything in those. I mean, they are just, I mean, if you ask anybody, nobody likes them. Nobody likes them, right? Who have you talked to? And they're just like, oh, I love Hallmark Christmas movies. And, and nobody admits they like them, and yet there's not any more popular thing on TV that people watch in December. Right? Somebody's watching these. There was 40 new ones this year alone. 40. And so these are super popular movies, and um, especially among uh, the middle-aged, you know, and especially among middle-aged women. And I believe this is because in every one of these movies, you have a breaking away of an idea, right? A breaking of an idea or an ideology or concept that, ha that has stopped somebody or upset somebody, and so they repent of it, right? And so that's what these movies are about. And so um, if you haven't seen them, 90% of them have a woman, um, middle-aged, who works downtown, <laughs> and she has the coolest job ever. Like, it's the coolest job. And somehow, right before Christmas, which I've never seen happen in real life, she gets a promotion, or while on break, she gets a promotion, right? And so she has to go home to her hometown, her family, see her high school crush, and so she's back home. And so now she has to make this decision. It's the drama of everyone. Does she follow her career or does she follow her heart? Right? That's the drama of these. And I believe the magic of it is that that person, that woman, is able to reject a lie. And so it's like going back to a point in their life where they believed a lie and they get a second chance to reject it. And so that belief typically in every one of these is... Um, well, guys don't like girls who are smart, and I want to be a career. I want to have a career. I, I want to have a career, 
and so I can't have a family. And so I have to leave my family behind, leave my love behind to follow my career at all costs. And in these movies, they come back to this moment where they realize, no, why do I have to choose either or? Like, yes, I'm awesome at my career, but I also love my family. I want to be around my family. I want to be around this, this regular guy, you know, who just treats me right and loves me. He looks good in a flannel. He buys me hot chocolate. <laughs> like, that's good. And so why can't I have both? And I truly believe the reason that these movies are so popular is because they refute the lie that you either have to do one or the other, or either or. And this morning, that's what we're going to be talking about, laying aside the lie of either or so we can run the race set before us. And I think this is the, the perfect time as we're coming to an end of a year and maybe you do resolutions or whatever you call it. I think this is a great time to think about how and why we do things. And so our sermon today is called Refuting the Error of Either Or. Our main text, we're going to have two, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And we're going to focus on four areas where there's a lot of confusion, which is religion, knowledge, repentance, and evangelism, which are kind of, you know, in some circles, kind of bad words, some things that there's arguments about. Maybe we don't really understand how they work, and they usually revolve around an either-or sort of approach to them. And so... This will make sense shortly, I promise. Um, and so this morning, though, as I've told a couple of you, I'm going to lean in a little bit. And so it wouldn't surprise me if at least one of these points is going to rub you the wrong way. But I'm hoping it's a challenge to you where, you know, you're just going to be, oh, oh, I've always thought about it like this, but let me, let me reframe that. And so let me, let me start by praying for us. Um, Heavenly Father, you are amazing, Lord. I am so thankful for this family that <clears throat> I got to see uh, not only last Sunday, but last Sunday night and Friday night, Lord. I thank you that you have a family like this that's after your own heart, um, that knows that you are worshipped by the way that we treat each other. And so our gathering and enjoyment is something that brings you joy. And may it always be the case, Lord. And may you add members to this family, add numbers to this family, Lord, and um, even this morning, Lord, uh, maybe even maturity or, or a different um, approach to you, to think of you bigger and to approach you with more passion, Lord. And so may our service bring you joy, lift up the name of Jesus, Lord, and just bless you and us, Lord, to your glory. Amen. So let's start with this idea of learning or training how to live the Christian life, which is known as religion. To begin, I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe." And so Paul is saying something here, as Paul does throughout Scripture, and Paul says, 
be trained, be training. Training is of value. Like we need to constantly be trained. And he's telling Timothy, as he's training, like this is basically Paul training Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, as you're training other people, this is the way to train them. And Paul mentions something not to do, right? He says, do this, don't do that, do this. And so right in the middle of this, Paul talking about how to be a good servant of Jesus, how to maximize your relationship with Jesus, he talks about something um, that you shouldn't do. And so because this command to, uh, to not follow this silly, irreverent myths takes place in between this command to train for godliness, right, twice, we have to believe that these silly, irreverent myths are anything that would stop us from training, so he's saying, train, train, don't do anything. Don't listen to people who tell you that training isn't of value. You must train. He mentions it over and over. <clears throat> and this leads to a belief that I've seen hurt many people. I've seen people leave the faith over this issue. And it's this idea. And it's this. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. Now, I have heard many people that I love with all my heart, many people I respect, respect in the faith, say this. But like Paul and Jesus and Jesus' brother James, I'm going to lovingly disagree. I'm going to disagree with you. In Scripture, according to Scripture, there's no distinction between the two. And if you ever have one without the other, it doesn't work. Our belief in God is measured by our obedience, right? Belief in God alone is not sufficient. A relationship status update is not sufficient. We see this in uh, James, um, another James, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. I wasn't going to quote myself. Um, you believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Because this was a problem in the early church as well, as people said, we know God, we know Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus, but they didn't know Scripture. They didn't have any theology. So what did they do? Well, nothing that was Christian. If, if you read like Corinthians, any of the letters that Paul writes, it's ridiculous. He's like, please stop getting drunk. Please stop sleeping with your relatives Right? And these are people who are professing that they have a relationship with Jesus, but they don't have right, that theology, that knowledge to back it up. In fact, the whole book of James, he's kind of harsh. I, I think the book of James, he, he's a little harsh, right? He's the one that tells you to be quiet and listen more than you talk, right? Let's learn something first. And so he says this in, in James chapter 1, verse 27, about religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so his command here isn't whether we should have a religion or not. He's like, we should have an awesome religion. We should have a pure religion, as Jesus mentions several times. We have this religion that has specific and certain things we do, like meeting Sunday morning, right? We do do things religiously, being different from the world is a religion, just like any other belief, like any other fan base or subculture, right, that has its own rules. This is our religion. It is different from the world. That's what makes it different, the way we live out our faith. 
And I think, I, I truly believe this notion of why religion is a bad word in Christianity is because of the Pharisees, right? We see Jesus interact with the Pharisees like in Matthew 23, uh, verse 27, where Jesus says this, <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So man, Jesus with the sick burn, right? Goodness gracious, I was such a sick burn. But notice that he also says the outward appearance was beautiful. He didn't say it was fake. He said the outward appearance was beautiful. It was everything else that was wrong. Like the religion was part was right. That's the way it should look. But it was the inside that was wrong because we need both. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, 20. Jesus talking again says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a sobering verse. I think this is one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. My hero, one of my heroes of the faith, R.C. Sproul, said this is the scariest verse in all the Bible. Because you have these Pharisees, and boy, do they just get it. Jesus does not hold back telling him exactly what he thinks about them because they didn't have the right heart, because they didn't have the relationship, right? They just had the religious actions. You see, God cares about both. Like, he wants us to have that relationship. He wants us to have that heart, but we also have to have the, the heart that God has. And we err to overcompensate the other direction. How is the answer to, to looking, good on the outside, looking good on the outside and not the inside? How is that better to look good on the inside but look horrible on the outside? Like, how is that a better option? Like, it's not. And that's what it says here, right? It must, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, people who are really good at religion. And he's like, we have to be good at our religion. It has to exceed them. And they were very good at it, and they missed the heart part which is great that we talk about that relationship part because that's the missing part, but don't trade one for the other. Now, when I came out this summer, I remember someone asked me, I, I, think, it was, I think it was Lee, maybe Jacob, um, asking me about this idea of having a youth group. What would I do with the kids and the youth in the church? You know, I believe I talked about my heart for the youth, which I absolutely have. I love the youth. What would you have done to me or thought about me if I said, eh, why would we do that? Why would we tell our kids that there's a different way to live? Like, why would we train them in righteousness? That doesn't make sense. The whole point is we just need a conversion. What would you have thought of me if that would have been my answer? I probably would have had another Christmas in Colorado, right? <laughs> because, and this is the truth, you know who really needs our religion besides us? Our children and our grandchildren. This week, I was listening to a discussion um, with Doug Wilson, and he mentioned this, and it was so interesting that Christians, more than any other religion, don't give an inheritance to our children and to our grandchildren, spiritually, spiritually speaking. We don't give an inheritance to them because we don't train them up in our religion. And his argument was this, since, especially since the rise of dispensationalism, Every Christian generation believes that we are in the last days, right? Like the last days. Like these could be 
singular, like this, this could be the last week. And, and that's great to live with that expectation. That's the way we should live. Man, Jesus is coming tonight. I want to live my life like that. But also, this has been happening for 2,000 years. And so what happens when you think that you are the last generation and that Jesus is going to come next week? We don't train our kids to live a life as though they're going to have a whole long life just like we did. We need to show this younger generation what our religion looks like. Now, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. Grandma, she's like that big. Um, and she was awesome, you know, like grandmas are. Like, she did everything for me, spoiled me, um, gave me whatever I wanted to eat, uh, could watch almost anything, go anywhere except for if, if church was happening. She was at church, and she invited us every week. Every week, called us, invited us to church, was praying for us. And Monday nights, Monday nights, my grandma prays for at least an hour, every Monday night. Nobody bugs her because we know she is spending time with God. And this was an example to us of putting God first, right at the beginning of the week, even as adults. Like, we don't, I don't call my grandma on Monday nights because I know she's meeting with God. You know, and that's not a biblical reference, but it's, it still shows us, like, what, what does religion look like? What does it look like for somebody to prioritize God in their life so much that you know as much as they love you, you love God more? Now, my grandma said many times that she had a relationship with Jesus, but she also showed it, right? She showed it. And so my encouragement to us is to show and tell our religion. Our religion shows what we believe. If you say you believe, we will live a religious life. Don't miss the best possible relationship with Jesus by neglecting the religion he gave us to know him by. Right? In every area of our life, we can know Jesus and redeem every area of our life. Learn to walk with the Lord religiously. And the way we do this is by gaining knowledge. So I want to talk about knowledge. Because church, there's another lie out there. <clears throat> there's another lie out there that I've heard just as much. And it looks, well, one of two ways. One, I don't need doctrine. I need Jesus. Or, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. As though you could only choose one or the other. And I hope if nothing else this morning, you realize that this isn't a Hallmark movie. We need both. It's not, it's not either or. We need to lay aside this idea that one compromises the other because they build off of each other. They need each other. And so back in verse 6 again, it says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So being a good servant of Jesus requires doing this, training, 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 examining your life inside and out. If you're going to be a good servant, the word good, good servant means you live your life a certain way, that you're always trained. And here it also mentions, you know, in the word and good doctrine. Like you know your Bible and you know your theology. You know, I believe somebody can be saved and not know a whole lot of theology, but not for very long, right? You have to make decisions immediately about what you believe and how you're going to live your life. Can we truly worship something or someone that we don't understand? Can we do that? That's like saying, hey, look, I, my favorite band is the Beatles, 
My favorite band is the Beatles. I couldn't tell you a single album. I don't know any, I've never even heard a Beatles song. I don't know anything about them, but somebody convinced me that they were a good band. And so I accepted the fact that they are my, my favorite band. Um, very influential. I know, you know, I even own a shirt. I think it has some guys walking across the street on it. You know, so yeah, Beatles are my favorite band. And that doesn't make sense, right? I mean, if you do that with me, if you're wearing a band shirt and you don't know, like, a lot about that band, you want to see me triggered, you could talk to my kids about that. Oh, man. And so I believe that goes for the faith as well. Like, we got to know, like, who we're worshiping, who, who we live our lives for. <clears throat> like, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 4, verse 24. It said, God is spirit, and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. And so if you don't have a theology, you don't have a good theology, right? And if you don't have a good theology, you don't have truth. And the truth is, Jesus cares about what you think and say about him. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Like Jesus, Jesus is saying, who, who is, what are they saying about me, guys? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. An incredible theological precise statement, right? Just a laser precise, accurate theological statement. All these other answers were kind of right-ish in ways, like they sounded biblical, they sounded like scripture, but they were wrong. And so we have a theological issue here. You know, Jesus is saying, like, you had the right theology, but what if Jesus asked us, what do you say about me? What are you telling people about me? You're inviting people to church, you're telling people to follow me. What are you saying about me? What do you believe about me to be true? Do we even know what son of man means? Like that's Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, or title. It's actually a title. But that's, his, that's what he calls himself. Why does he call himself that? These are things that, that we need to know. We need to have a good theology. But theology, the word theology, the idea of theology, just like religion in some circles is frowned upon. You know, I, I've basically been a part of churches where I was asked to leave or we left because it was so uncomfortable because I pressed into theology when I press things in a little bit deeper. There's churches like that. You don't need theology. You just need Jesus. Just show up. And yeah, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've heard a lot of good things. We went through John chapter 1. I think we took us six weeks to get through that. And we learned what Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator, the light and the life, the lamb and the ladder, the truth and the flesh. Those are all theological statements, right? Those are all theological realities if any one of those things is not true, like we should be doing something much better with our time, right? But it's those theological truths that are true that keep us here. We, we know that theology is true. And this is also the pushback I get as being, um, as I was talking to some of you about being with my family. We don't talk about theological things. I am the theological black sheep of my family. And it's because theology is divisive. 
And so people push back, I think with a good heart for the most part, and say, why would I study theology or talk about theology when all it does is divide? And it's true, it divides. And Jesus wouldn't have it any other way. Let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. And this is Jesus talking, right, about this, about who he is and the reality of who he is. He says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, if you're talking about me, if you're talking about me, Jesus, this room will divide. I divide rooms, you know, with the theology, the correct thoughts and truth about who I am. So the question isn't whether we have a theology of Jesus, but do we have a good theology of Jesus? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. And this goes for all theology. Studying the scripture to learn about God, to know about God so that we could know God personally and live out this religion, inform our doctrine. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we meet on a Sunday morning? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? Why do we reject songs? Why do we pray? Why do we do these things? These are all theological truths. These aren't, this isn't tradition. This is based on the truth of God, the reason that we do things. And so we must have a theology along with our faith and relationship with Jesus. Consider Paul, rock star theologian Paul, right? And he's just the dude um, called by Jesus face to face, has the best education ever possible, best church planner, missionary, wrote most of the New Testament, resume of resumes, and in the same letter to Timothy, he says in chapter 4, verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Trous, also the books and above all the parchments. <laughs> and so Paul, I mean, he's old here. We know um, by the fact that Luke hung out with Paul a lot that, that Paul is sick. Paul is sick. We, we, uh, we believe it had to do with vision. At some point, he couldn't even hold a pen. And so he tells other people to write this stuff down. And so when he's asking for supplies, right, he's not like, bring me good food, you know, don't bring me nice clothes. He's like, give me a blanket, the scriptures, and some paper. That's it. At the very end of his life, that's what he was still about. I want the theology. I know I'm going to see Jesus now, but I want to, I want to read about him again, and I want that paper to write about him so that people have correct theologies. And he wrote several more letters because he gets that paper. He gets the scriptures and gets paper and just starts writing to people. And what is he writing to people? Change your actions. Change your religion. Like here's the theology, like Romans, a very theological document. But all the other letters is like, your religion is wrong. Your religion is wrong. Stop saying you're a Christian if your life is not going to reflect what Christ is about. This means heading into this next year, we need to discipline ourselves to grow. And I don't know what that looks like for you. It's something I could talk about with you. But you have to discipline yourself to read, to pray, to come to church. You have to make that a priority. Take that relationship, which is the most important relationship you have with Jesus, and add as much knowledge and function to it as possible. Use your hands, right? Have, change your mind and use your hands 
everything to reflect your love for Jesus, that relationship will get better. I promise you, you cannot give enough. You will never empty yourself of what Jesus can do for you. And that we don't do these things for God's favor. We don't do these things because at some point you're so religious like God accepts you. Right? That is not, that is not the gospel at all. But we do it, like Paul says in Romans 12 too, to, to transform our minds. And so the reality is we can only have two kinds of minds, church. Right? There's only two minds. There's, there, you can have the mind that the world programs for you. The world is programming your mind a certain way. Or you can have a mind that the word transforms. But if you're not dedicated to that, if you're not dedicated to that knowledge, if you're scared or, or, or don't believe in reading the Bible or having theological ideas, you're going to miss it. The world is just going to keep programming your mind. Your theology is what's going to fight back. That spirit in you, I believe it's Romans 8 or 9 that talks about, feed your spirit. Like God is talking to you right now, but you need to make those decisions in what you do that are going to feed your spirit. You could feel, feed your flesh or you could feed your spirit. It's going to be one or the other. And so feed that theology into your mind and see what happens with your life. Lay aside the lie that you need theology instead of Jesus. They go together. Religion, relationship, theology, Jesus, they all go together. And I want to shift focus a little bit to uh, the idea of losing weight. Because, I mean, it's New Year, that's what we talk about, right? And no, it's not that kind of weight. And so what it says here in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, Therefore, since we, have surround, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. And so what this is talking about is repentance, getting rid of this weight that's holding us back from what God wants us to be. Now, laying aside every weight here, it's a little ambiguous. And I think that's very intentionally so um, because you could literally feel in anything right here Anything that is stopping you, even good things, stopping you from running the race set before you, anything you could put in here. If it's stopping you from going to Jesus or sharing your faith, it is something that you can get rid of. But the one thing that is mentioned here that I want to start with is sin, which is repentance, right? When you stop sinning, we're repenting of that sin. So what sort of lie would tell us to not repent? What sort of lie would we believe that would tell us that we should not be repenting? And there's a couple ways to, to, to describe this, but basically it's the idea of you do you. I know you guys have heard this. You just do you. Be the best you you can. That's all you need to be. Like you need to be the best you to be the happiest. It is wrong to suggest to anybody that they should want to change anything about themselves. And if you do, it's your problem, right? You're a bigot. You're full of hate if you ask somebody, you know, to, to better themselves. It's something that we just can't do anymore. We live in a fragile, feeling-based society that doesn't want to hear about this, that they need to not do anything. And this is something the church in general, in general, has played up to. Listen to the words of Stephen Furtick. Just this once. Don't, you don't have to go back to him again, but he says this, you are enough. He said that in a sermon. You are enough. And follow that up with, 
Following Jesus doesn't change you. You are enough. Following Jesus doesn't change you. Are you kidding me? What kind of preaching is that? If I ever preach that to you guys, please let that be my last sermon here. That, that's just not true. I love all of you. You are amazing, smart, unique people. I love talking to you. God has made you in this season of life, in our world today, right? Just awesome people with gifts and just so much great things about you. Embrace that. But also, you are not enough. You're not. And that's not a bad thing. Why, why would you be here in church if, if you were already where you needed to be? Why would you go to school? Why would you go to college if you were already enough? Why would we go to the gym if we were already enough? We are not enough. We have a life and race set before us. It requires getting rid of things that drag us down, sins that drag us down and give us depression and upset us. And it's usually the sin of believing that sin is okay. Underneath it all, if we get down to a root cause analysis, the problem, the thing that depresses us is that we are making excuses for our sin and we're continuing to sin and we're wondering why I'm stuck in this cycle of being upset and depressed at everything. And it's a sin issue. You know, it's not in my notes here, but you know, it's coming back to me in Genesis where God telling Cain, like, if you do the right thing, you're going to feel good. And if you don't, you're going to feel bad. So it's very much tied to our actions the way that we feel. And we see this truth of repentance in Matthew chapter 4, 17, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> and then again, James in chapter 4, verse 8. And James is pushing in with love because his church, if you've ever read the book of James, man, their religion is, I mean, they're coming to uh, the communion table and they're getting drunk. Like, that's how bad their church services are. So if it sounds like James is being harsh, they are not doing things right. So this is what James says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, stop overthinking this. Stop overthinking this. Are you not happy with yourself? You don't feel good about yourself? The answer is so easy. Stop doing the thing that's upsetting you. Like, wash your hands of it. Let it go. You want to feel better about yourself? Stop sinning and get closer to God. You will feel better about yourself. That's what you have to do because the priority, the priority of sanctification is not your self-esteem. That is not the order that things work in. You want to feel good about yourself? Look to God. God loved you so much that he, that he sent Jesus to the cross for you to bear the weight of your sin, the death that you deserved. You put his Holy Spirit in you so that all times God is telling you what to let go of. God is telling you what would make you happy. He gives you peace and joy and self-control. He gives us all these things. We just need to pay attention to those things instead of prioritizing everything else. Lay aside the lie that you should do you. You are awesome, but you are not enough. And so the rest of the year, this week, and all of next year, and the rest of your lives, get rid of anything that's weighing you down. Get rid of that sin. You will feel better about yourself. 
And so, like it says, again, we are able to run the race that's set before us. That's why we do that. This life is a race. It's a race. Paul always uses that imagery. This is a race that we are running. And so this race, much of it is all based on evangelism. Because the reality is we are already saved. If, if we die today, we go to heaven. So why are we here, right? This was Paul's, again, this isn't, this isn't in my notes, but Paul says over and over, he, he's just like, why am I still here? If I'm not here, I'll be with Jesus. So why am I struggling so bad to stay alive? And it's for evangelism. The one thing that we can't do in heaven, the one thing we can't do in heaven is tell other people about Jesus that haven't heard about Jesus, right? That's why we're here. So let's talk about this evangelism. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we could see in 1 Timothy 4.10, it says, "For, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. And so we're running towards Jesus. We are running towards eternity, but we're running a race that we've already won. And if we're still running a race we've already won, it's because we want to bring other people to victory as well. We've already won in Christ. We already finished the race, right? We win. And so our job now is to get everybody else to this God that's the Savior of people. Get people to believe in the Savior and be saved. And this seems straightforward again. So what kind of lie would stop us from doing that? And so when I was a new Christian, and I didn't know better, I, I, w- I was taught this line all the time. Maybe you've heard it. It's not even a quote. It's, it's, we figured out that nobody ever said this, but it's been misquoted by everybody as being truth, and it's this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. Have we all heard that? Yeah, yeah, and nobody ever said that. One pastor said it one time, and it snowballed into person quotes a person, and now it's a thing, and it sounds totally kind of biblical-ish, right? I mean, that sounds, oh man, that sounds so, it's so good. And I understand what it's trying to say, right? Like, your life should be so holy, like it's so evident that you are a follower of God, which is a good thing. The problem is, use words when necessary. What do you think happens when you tell people they don't have to share the gospel? Nobody shares it! Right? And so I know one of the churches, that, actually two of the churches that I went to that really preach this no longer exist. Because they didn't share the gospel. They thought that living their lives a certain way was all people needed. Even in our holiest actions, even if we're like really good mimes, right? Like, and we, and we could mime it out, and we have mad mime skills, we can't communicate by action the gospel. We can't communicate something that somebody is going to understand, look at us and say, oh, you live your life like this? Oh, you must have Jesus. Oh, he must be the Savior of the world. He must be the Lamb of God. Nobody's going to jump to that conclusion. That's too much information. Even Paul says in creation, right, which shows us God in Romans 1, they have this beautiful creation that proves God exists, but that doesn't save anybody. That just proves God exists, right? Like nobody can rationally argue that God exists or not. Science points to God, but science isn't the gospel. Believing God exists is not the gospel, 
Right? You have to believe the truth of the gospel. You know? And of course, you could argue sign language. You're not using words, but you're using words in sign language. It's not just, it's not just actions. And so absolutely, we should live lives that show the gospel. People should look at us and be like, whoa, what's up with them? Like, why, why are their actions so good? Yeah, people should see our light and then ask about it, and then we could talk about Jesus. That is the way it's supposed to work. But the idea of not talking doesn't work. And so we are about to start, I would argue, probably the most important year in the history of this church, this coming year. <clears throat> and our priority has to be the sharing of the gospel. We have to share the gospel with words. For this church to grow, we need to communicate with words, right? Prayer, talking to God. God, we need to grow. We need a building. Uh, we need to grow in the faith. We need to grow in love. Um, but we also need to grow in numbers. There's empty seats here. They shouldn't be. Bakersfield, we know. There's people in Bakersfield that are not saved. We want to see them saved. And so we need to use words, communicate with God. And for this church to grow, and I believe we can, we have to share what's happening here. And so I, I truly, truly believe that for Vanguard to grow as a church, that we're going to have to be like a cult classic movie. You guys know what a cult classic movie is? It's kind of small, not a big budget, not a lot of promotion, no one's ever heard of it. But like 20 years later, it's like everybody's heard about it. It's like a Christmas story. That was not a successful movie. And yet everybody knows about it because word of mouth. You've seen this movie? It's hilarious. There's a lamp leg, like, you know. And so everybody hears about it because everybody's talking about it. And for this, for this church to grow, we don't have a budget to make like giant billboards or to have a, a flapping inflatable guy outside on every corner. We don't have that budget, you know, and that's not going to win anybody over, right? I've never gone into anywhere. I like those inflatable guys. It's never convinced me to go in anywhere. But tell me what's happening here. Tell me about like a Christmas Eve service where everybody shows up. That's what I want to hear about. Tell me about transformed lives. Tell me about a church that refuses to die. That's what I want to hear about. Everybody in this world is giving up, right? Everybody's leaving church. I want to hear about that church that will fight tooth and nail, that will love each other and do whatever it takes to survive. And so we have to communicate that for this church to grow. Share on social media as well. So next week, uh, we're going to start a series in John chapter 3 called God Save Bakersfield. And so how can somebody not want to come see a series called God Save Bakersfield? So let's invite people. When I post that, let's invite people to that as we go through John chapter 3. And so let us endure and lay aside that weight that slows us down. The priorities of this world can't be our priorities, church. Don't let the world tell us what our priorities are. And here's the deal. Like, I've talked to most of you. I agree with everybody's politics here, right? I, I, I have issues with gender politics. I have issues with the government that I don't know if it's comically bad or scary. It's, it's not working, right? I have a problem with masks and mandates. I have a problem with all those things. But those aren't the church's priority. And yet, if you look at a lot of churches, that's still what they're talking about. That's still the number one hot-button thing is all these issues that were never issues for the church, never issues for Jesus, never issues for Paul. They were theological issues. Like, our race isn't 
to, to take whatever the world's priority is and concentrate on that. All this stuff is a distraction. It is a distraction. This is not what we're called to. And like I said, I agree with you. I'm not saying that I disagree with you. I'm just saying like our priority has to be the gospel. That's our race. We're being absolutely distracted and it's a weight that's slowing the church down. I don't want us to slow it down. It's time to run our race. And so we need to lay aside this, this passion we have against our government. And let's have a passion for the kingdom of God. Which one of those is greater? The kingdom of God, let's have that be our passion in our race. Let's lay aside the focus on the fad of gender identity. That can't be our focus. Let's focus on getting people a new identity in Christ. Like that's a true, real identity that people need to know about. Don't get tripped up by who says, calls anybody anything else. If they're not being called a Christian, if they're not being in Christ, then that should be our issue, not what they look like or say or TikTok. That should not be our priority at all. And let us lay aside the distractions of masks and endure the preaching of the gospel. Are we really going to stand before God someday and tell him that a little piece of cloth stopped us from sharing the gospel? Is that really what we're going to do? Do you think that the people of Bakersfield, do you not think their blood is going to be on our hands if we hold up a little piece of cloth and tell God, sorry, my freedom to share the gospel was taken away by this little piece of cloth? We can't get distracted. I don't like the masks, but I like the idea of people going to hell much worse. And if we don't communicate these things with words and deeds, how are anybody going to know? If we're just being loud and obnoxious like everybody else, how are people going to know that we're different? We've been distracted by the priority of the flesh and blood. When this is a spiritual battle, it's time for Vanguard Bible Church to run the race that God gave us, not that the world gave us. And so let us end this year and start next year by walking with the Lord religiously, by knowing the word thoroughly, by repenting of sin frequently and sharing the gospel always. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.